All right, we're, we've been in a series called The Justice Wars. Uh, this is going to be part four. Uh, everybody got their notes? I hope everybody got a copy of the notes. Um, let's, let's go ahead and get started in this. Now, we're, we're currently in a war of ideas. You know that very well, and especially over this idea of justice. And there, it's, it's getting very volatile. It just seems like every day it gets a little bit more intense, doesn't it? Unfortunately, uh, we're in a war for the souls of our nation and souls of people. There's no doubt about it. And uh, the integrity of our nation is at stake, really. Now, let me, let me just kind of open up with this part, and then we'll get into our Bible study in just a moment. Now, you've been hearing a lot lately about some folks' idea of justice, about defund the police or abolish the police. Anybody that's ever lived in a volatile situation uh, in a city or something of that nature, especially, they, you know that that's like one of the worst ideas that's ever been proposed, to be honest with you. Um, but my, my thing is, why, why is this even an idea? Why is this even an idea? And this is what some of their, their logic is, uh, the ones that are propo proposing this idea. Uh, the several activist movements are dedicated to the idea that America is systemically racist and built on white supremacy and white privilege. Now, where does defund the police come in? In their eyes, the police are a major part of that enforcement of, of this systemic racism issue uh, that's in the United States. So to take care of some of that issue, they're saying the police is actually part of the root problem, okay? Just so you know, I, I don't agree with their thoughts, I don't agree with their ideas, but just so you know, I don't want you to be, be ignorant of these things, so we'll just be more equipped. Now, let's, let's talk about this idea here, just give you some stats, just to help you in some of your conversations and your processing of thoughts. Just some, some police stats right here. Uh, does police brutality happen? And the answer is occasionally it does. Occasionally it does, there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, but it is the exception and not the rule. Let's keep that in mind, too. What we saw happen with George Floyd uh, is the exception and not the rule. I promise you. And I'm going to give you some stats that's going to show you some of that and help you out. Uh, the, the overwhelming majority of police officers are there to serve and protect. I mean, the overwhelming majority, I would say 99.9% .9 of them are there to serve and protect. Uh, they almost, a lot of them see it as their calling, you know. Um, to do that, and, and you almost have to see the job as a calling, really, if you're going to do it. I mean, it really is a high calling, and it's, a, and it's a need. And why do we need the police? Well, because there's real evil in the world. There's real bad guys out there. You know, there's people out there that, that um, they, don't, they don't have good intent in mind, and they have your harm or, or destruction or whatever it might be, but that's why we need them. And we we'll, we'll may get into some of Romans 13 a little bit later, but Romans 13 tells us why we need that kind of law enforcement. It tells us that and, and governing officials. All right, so now here's some police st stats here. Some police shooting data, and this all comes from uh, the Washington Post Police Shooting Database and the FBI Uniform Crime Report. Just to help you, just to equip you a little bit, uh, shooting data from 2019 that 14 unarmed black people were shot and killed in 2019. 14, okay, I mean, that's across the United States, okay? Now, if, if I was to ask you, how many do you think were, were killed after we go through all the media stuff and all the hype and all that kind of thing, how many do you think were killed? I mean, you'd, you'd think the number was in the thousands, wouldn't you? You'd think it's in the hundreds or thousands. But 14 unarmed black people were shot and killed in 2019. 25 unarmed white people were shot and killed. Now, that's, that doesn't testify of a systemic problem, not in that area right there. Now, listen, 
27 deadly weapons attacks happen on police officers every single day, according to a study in 2014. So out of those 27 per day that happen against police officers across the United States, out of those 27, just a few of them end in the actual death of the, the accused criminal or whatever. Uh, I'd say that's a pretty good number there. I mean, I, I hate any of that's happening, actually. But listen to this. This will help you out a little bit, too. Police encounters data. Police encounter citizens, 60 million encounters per year. 60 million encounters per year, okay? And, and this is like investigative or, or criminal-type activity encounters, those kind of things, okay? 60 million encounters police have with citizens per year. 10 million of those, like less than 20% of those, end up in arrest per year, okay? Out of all of that 60 million encounters and 10 million arrests, an estimated 1,000 fatal shootings happen per year. That's both armed and unarmed. Most of those are, are armed folks. So that, that leaves us with some data here. Listen, listen to this. Write this down. It's in your notes right there. Point zero 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 one percent chance. You have a point zero 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 one percent chance if you encounter the police of being killed by a police officer. I mean, it's anybody. I'm telling you, that's that that that's a far different story than what's being told in a lot of circles today. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, you've got, like, I've heard somebody say that. You've got almost a better chance to get hit by lightning. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up, but yeah. <laughs> he said it's kind of like, that's right. I, I, I just give you that, you know, I'm not, just to help you in some of your conversations, some of your mental process, you can use some of these figures. Uh, they're all credible uh, through these sources as well. You can go on these websites and look for it yourself. You know, I, I like to source things out myself if, if I can. Now, are there issues that need to be addressed? That's always. There's always issues, there's always conduct issues, there's always maybe some over-aggressive issues that need to be addressed, there's no doubt about it. Um, are there bad cops? Yeah, sure. I mean, are there bad doctors? Are, are there bad politicians? Maybe, maybe we ought to focus on some of that. Um, <laughs> what's that? Uh, are, are there bad cops? Yes. So what do you do with the bad cops? Well, they've got processes and procedures to weed them out. They, they, the police know how to police themselves. That, that's what they do, you know. Um, just give you that data because the data does not support the systemic racism idea against the police department. The data does not support it. You know, so most of this movement is not built on factual data. It's built on a, a lot of emotion, you know, and, and, and maybe some people have been wronged. Maybe some are, are part of that point zero 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 one percent or something of that nature maybe some of their family members or something like that I'm, I'm not sure but the idea of systemic you know what systemic means that means it's like all the way across the board it's infiltrated you see that idea the data just doesn't support it uh, and the reason the data doesn't support it is because the whole idea of systemic racism in the police department is a lie it's just a lie and it's a lie that is being told very very effectively all across our nation and um, these movements aren't the only ones that are, that are telling this lie. It, it's, it's just something, I, I, want, I just want you to be equipped, all right? So now here, here's some potential solutions. Tell the truth. 
tell the truth and stop the, stop the lies. Just stop them. Stop them. Because we can't even address the real issues if we can't get to the truth of things. You know what I'm talking about? Another solution is let's lower the crime rate. Here's an idea. Instead of defund the police, you know what we need? We need more officers. We need more funding. We need more training. We need better technology. We need better community relations. We need a lot of better stuff in our police departments all the way across our board, from our small communities like ours, all the way across. I, I can promise you, you can go talk to any police chief uh, at any particular level, and he would tell you that one of the ways he, that can be helped is that he could get more, more training, more you know, tactical equipment and things like that that would, would help better technology and development, things of that nature. Better cameras, all those kind of things. Uh, you got to lower the crime rate, though. Hey, I'm from Memphis. And uh, there are parts of Memphis that um, a lot of folks dare not travel into. I promise you. Um, I've worked in some of those areas, and it, it's, it's not a pretty city. I'm kind of looking at all these things that's happening in Portland and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, you see some of the after footage of all the, the trash and the graffiti and the destruction and the burned out buildings and, and all the stuff. And, and I just say to Portland, I mean, that's horrible. But you know what? That, that parts of Memphis have looked like that for the last 50 years. That's an everyday situation in, in most cities. You know what I'm talking about? What's that? Yeah. So, so this, I mean, there's just, got to lower the crime rate. You got to get, and Memphis has done a better job in the last 10 or 15 years of trying to, to get some of that and do some of city revitalization projects and things of that nature. But the problem is that the crime rate keeps bumping up. And here's the deal. Unless you get the crime rate lowered in the city, or any place really, unless you get the crime rate lowered, you can't work against poverty. You can't. You know why? I mean, if you got a business and you're moving into town, are you going to move into the worst part of town where everything you got might not be there in the morning when you get there? Are you going to be there? You're not going to be there, you know? So we've got to lower the crime rate. That's where we got to work with our police officers and help them and defend them. Work towards eliminating poverty, especially in these inner city communities, because there will be no peace or no prosperity until there's peace and safety. That's just a fact, isn't it? All right. That's my little spiel. And here, here's my last idea of all that. We'll get in our Bible study. Police are not the problem. Police are not the problem. They're the good guys. For the most part, I mean the vast most part, they're the good guys. Criminals and corrupt leaders, that's our problem. Everybody good? <laughs> Welcome to Mosley Bridge. How y'all good? All right. I just want you equipped. I, I, I mean, we can't stop these lies until folks get the truth out. And, and my hope is that all across America, from pulpits to whatever forum people might have, to conversations across coffee tables and stuff like that, stuff like this is talked about, you know? All right, let's get into our Bible study, all right? You good now? And you know, that may not, some people may not sit well with that and say, well, you shouldn't be talking about all that kind of stuff in church. Well, this is just life stuff. We're really going through it, guys. We're really going through it. And, and if you're going to be silent, uh, we're going to wake up one day and we won't be able to do what we're doing right now. That's the truth. All right. So now let's get into our Bible study. All right. What does the Bible say about justice? That's where we're at. What does the Bible say about justice? And we're, we're talking about some foundations for a just and a civilized society. Foundations. We've already kind of started this talk. Um, here's just a little bit of review from what we've done the last week or two. Number one, God is just in all his ways. So that's a real foundation to, to us being a just and a righteous society or just and righteous people. 
to realize that God is just. And if you remove God out of, if I can use it this way, if you move God, remove God out of life or out of the equation, then all you're left with is sinful people running things. And we, we come in with our statement here, God is too loving to be unjust and he's too wise to be wrong. And another foundation we talked about, and it, it builds from God, because we believe God is just in all his ways, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us, and therefore his word speaks to us about justice, and it speaks to us about righteousness. His word gives us the principles and the guidelines that help us work towards justice in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities, in our cities, even across the national levels, all right? And that builds on to this, this uh, adding to that foundation, the Bible is our standard for right and wrong. It's not that we just take the Bible seriously. We, we really believe that the Bible is our authority. And if I'm right, I'm right because I agree with it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong because I've offended it in some way. All right? All right. So now let's get some new ground here. All right. You ready for some new ground? All right. You got some fill in the blanks there in your notes. This is some, some fresh stuff for us. Another idea of a foundation that, that makes for a just and civil society is the principle of self-government and personal responsibility. Everybody say self-government. Self we may say it in a different kind of way where we'd say self-control or um, what would be another way to say it? Discipline. Discipline. That's a good way to say it. Self-discipline, that kind of thing. Uh, so self-government and personal responsibility are hugely important. Uh, the highest and best form of government is when an individual person chooses to live and govern themselves according to God's righteous standards. You and I got to make that choice, you know. It's not government's place to make it for me. And I found out too that, that God will help me in that, but he won't make that choice for me. But God will help me. But he intends on us to govern ourselves. And he's given us a lot of freedom in all of that. And with that freedom also comes a lot of responsibility, doesn't it? Now, other forms of government become necessary when self-governing breaks down. I mean, why do we need the police? Well, if we could all govern ourselves properly and according to right standards and right and wrong, if we all governed ourselves properly, you realize that there would be no need for the police? There would be no need for lawyers. There would be no need, well, very little. There'd be very little need for judges, courts, prisons. The reason we have a need for all of that is because the idea of people controlling themselves in the right ways towards one another or society or somebody's property is broken down. And that breakdown is what the Bible calls sin, isn't it? And the truth is, while we're just being real, the truth is that we've all violated this principle of self-governing properly. We've all violated it. What does the Bible say about sin? For all have, for all have sinned and violated, I mean, say in my wording right here for this purpose, we've all violated this idea of governing ourselves properly. Mm -hmm. My mama kind of helped me with that. Anybody's mama and daddy help them with that a little bit? Mm -hmm. All right, let's, let's keep building on this idea. So God has empowered all human beings with the dignity of choosing right and wrong. You know, one of the greatest gifts God has given us is this idea of free will. Freedom of choice. In fact, God put Adam and Eve in a garden and gave them freedom of choice. And they, they actually had the freedom to make it as great as possible. And they also had what? What does freedom also give you? The idea to mess it up, doesn't it? Or the potential to mess it up. 
So God has given us the ability and the dignity of choosing right. I believe that's part of the idea of us being created in His image and His likeness. He gave us freedom. And, and you know, we want freedom. Freedom's a great thing. Freedom is a great gift from God. But because of that freedom, God also holds each of us accountable for our choices. That's the part that's kind of the double-edged sword right there. You've got freedom to make choices, but we also have accountability for the choices we make. We make good choices, there's reward. You make bad choices, there's sometimes severe consequences depending on what the choice is, right? Here's, here's this idea of choosing right and wrong and this idea of accountability that, that every man that's ever been born on the face of this planet is without excuse before God. You can read this in, in Romans chapter 2, actually. You know that every person is without excuse before God. God has already revealed himself in many, many different ways, creation being chief among them in a lot of ways. God has given us his word. But God has also given you and I a gift of something else. That sometimes it's, it's, it's almost a haunting gift sometimes. Each of us has what we call a conscience. You know what a conscience is? Help me out. Tell me. What's a conscience? An inner voice. An inner voice. That's, that's a good way to put it. Anybody else? The Holy, the Holy Spirit helps us with our conscience. He, he, he pricks that conscience. Now, he, it's an inward instinct that God has put in us to discern right and wrong, to make choices concerning right and wrong. And you have been given that, okay? And that, that is not to trap you into something. It's actually meant to, as, a, as a gift to help you to shun what's wrong and to choose what's right. Now, let's listen to what he says right here in Romans 2, 14 and 15. This is kind of an insertion into his thought right here in Romans chapter 2. And you may want to go back and read Romans 1 and 2 and, and 3. He talks a lot about um, sin and the problem of sin in, in that chapter, those, those chapters. Verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. Now he's talking about the law of God, the scriptures, okay? Like, like the, the law of Moses. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Okay, so now he's talking about people who, who don't have the revelation, not Jews. They didn't have the scriptures given to them. They didn't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't have all of those ideas of what makes a good society and what makes a good person and what choices we should make. Gentiles didn't always have that. But they had something else. When they didn't have the law of God written by Moses... They've got the law written in their hearts. That's the conscience, right? Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing. Now here's something I've learned about our conscience though. You, you oftentimes can control the volume switch on your conscience. You know that? Unfortunately. That's another part of that freedom. And you can ignore your conscience to the point that the Bible says it actually gets seared off of you. And that, that's, that's a terrible place to be, actually. That's what the Bible calls like a reprobate mind is where you literally can't discern right and wrong anymore. That you can, you can toy with sin so much and, and push your conscience aside so much that you can't, it's not even a part of you anymore. That's a terrible thing. And, and what... What kind of society would that be of people that no longer have a conscience? What kind of society would that be? It would be chaos and lawlessness. And doesn't Jesus say something about lawlessness coming back in the end times? You know, it's here with us now. That's just some ideas right here, okay? 
Now let, let's, let's get in this idea of self-government again and let's read this, this. You can follow along in your notes right there. Let's read some passages out of Ezekiel 18. Now I'm going to skip through that chapter. You may want to go read Ezekiel 18 a little bit later. Uh, I believe it'll be a help to you. It's, it's a great chapter on this idea of how we are responsible and accountable to God. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel talking. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Okay, now what in the world is that? Did you see the picture right there of this proverb? The fathers eat sour grape. You ever eat anything sour, like a sour piece of fruit? What's it do with your teeth? Kind of makes them gritty sometimes, doesn't it? Now what he's saying right here, this, this is what's circulating among my people, is that the fathers have done something sour and the children taste it. Let me say it another way. The fathers have done something wrong and the children pay the consequences. Or pay for that particular sin. Let's say it like that. And he says, don't say that anymore in Israel. Why? Why does he, he's going to continue the thought right here. He says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right... I didn't put the verse there, but it, it talks about that man shall live. Okay. I omitted that part in verse, verse 5 and 6. So the soul who sins shall die. So if the, according to God's law, if the father sins, who's responsible for that sin? The father. Okay. Now, if the child sins, who's responsible for that sin? The child is responsible. Now, are there factors that we could go to and say there, this, this happened and this, this shaped me and this made me and this helped me to, to learn wrong? And all? Are there factors? Yes, there are factors involved. If, if a father does wrong, the child obviously learns wrong. But guess what God does because of the dignities put in the human soul with the conscience, even if it's been, been a witness to a lot of other stuff. God has given that child that comes along the choice to do right or to do wrong. Now, that would put a whole lot of psychologists out of business if they believed that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, it doesn't mean we don't have to deal with some of the consequences of family problems and things like that. But it does mean, let me just say it real plain like this, okay? Let's, let's, just a real graphic example. Let's say that the dad's an alcoholic. There's a chance that that child's going to be an alcoholic, right? I mean, that happens, doesn't it? But there's also a chance that that child may not be an alcoholic. Whose choice is it for that child to become an alcoholic? If it's me, it'd be my choice, wouldn't it? And that's the way God looks at it. Now, you can blame your mom and daddy all you want. I've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> You can blame them all you want, but when the day is done, guess who's responsible for where they are in life? Because see, here's something about God. God will give a person who's even raised in a, in a, a disenfranchised environment to where they don't have the privileges. God will give that person the ability to overcome if they'll ask. 
He extends a lot of mercy and a lot of grace to everybody. I personally believe, especially to people who are in those kind of situations. Because sometimes life, what you've been handed, will put you behind the proverbial eight ball. Sometimes it will. But what do we do with that? All I'm saying is, if life hands you lemons, what do you do? You, you make lemonade. You, you have the ability, and God is helping us here. He says, if you want to sin, that's your choice. But you don't have to, no matter how you were raised. Or what side of the tracks you were born on. You don't have to go down that track. Okay? Everybody okay with that? Let's keep listening here. Um, let's see. I got a few more here. Verse number 20. I think I... Can somebody turn to Ezekiel 18? I think I, I skipped something here. Um, go, go to Ezekiel 18. Somebody got their Bible to Ezekiel 18? I skipped one I want to read to you. I, I didn't put it in my notes. I'm pretty sure... Verse number nine. Miss Pat, you going to look that up for me real quick? 18, I think so. Read, read it real loud and l let me hear it. Um, hath walked in my statutes and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord. Okay, go to verse number 10. Maybe it's 10. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any one of these things. Okay. Now, that, that's, that's not what I'm thinking of. Let's just go to verse number 20. I think it'll clear itself up. Sorry about that. I, I, do, I am missing a couple verses there, but um, we'll, we'll catch up later. Go home, read the chapter. I believe it'll, it'll piece some things together. Verse number 20. Self-government and personal responsibility again now. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. In other words, if, if, even if in a family, let's say a son does wrong, the father's not responsible for that, that choice that that son makes. Okay. The, righteous, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now that's a wicked person. So if somebody's off track, in the wrong and they make it right, God said, I'll honor that, right? It's a pretty strong language here about living and dying, isn't it? He's going to say something else real strong right here. None of the transgressions which he has committed, the wicked person, none of the transgressions which he's committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Well, that's some good news right there, isn't it? Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Jesus. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them. He shall die. So that's a, that's, that's a righteous man who gets off track. Okay. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Okay, now this is God dialoguing with his people. So you're going to tell me that this is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? There's an idea of justice, isn't there? 
When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Now, we don't like to think about all this kind of stuff now, but, you know, there's some severe consequences to some of the decisions we make. You know? Everybody real quiet. This is kind of heavy. <laughs> this kind of drops like a hammer, yeah. hammer doesn't it? Yeah. Well, we need to be scared, scared to life, not scared to death, you know? Again, listen, he clears this up now. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. There's a formula in here that if you do what's right, you will live. If you do what's wrong, you will die. And God is very plain about the terms of life. That's why he says, I'm being fair. I've told you up front how all this works. I've, I've gone to great pains to deal with you in all of this. I've gone to great pains to teach you all of this kind of thing. And you're saying that I'm not being fair? You're the one that's not being fair to the terms of the covenant. That's what he's saying. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. There's that idea again. O house of Israel, is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? The heavy right here now. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. You see, repentance is, a, is always an option. Okay, so now you are somebody that's raised in a bad environment. You still have the option to repent and turn away and go a different direction. That's part of human dignity. I've got it, you've got it. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. What does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus talking to Nicodemus, doesn't it? To be born again. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Why are you going to die in all this wrongdoing and all this transgression and all this sin? Why are you going to die? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. You know, we say this, this idea, we, we, we jokingly said as pastors, preaching sermons that say turn or burn. Well, God doesn't say turn or burn. He says turn and live. Turn and live. That's the idea. And we have the ability to govern ourselves and say we're in the middle of something wrong. We've probably all been there. I know I have. And your conscience is hammering you day and night sometimes. And it may take a little while before you soften up to it and actually humble yourself and, and, and respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, stop. At least stop. It may take a little while. But God has given us the, the, the ability to turn away from anything that's wrong. And he says this, he's, he's struggling. Don't you, hear, don't you hear him struggling with us through the prophet? Saying, why would you die? I've made every opportunity possible for you to live. So live. Don't die. I don't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, he says in another place. I don't have any pleasure for any person to die in their transgressions. And see, that's, a, that's another picture of God we need to get. Because sometimes we, we think God to be this great big killjoy with this big stick. Can't wait to get a hold of us. 
You know, that might be a bad parent, but that's not God. Amen. You know? God doesn't have any pleasure in us doing wrong or in his punishment of what's wrong. There's a lot of personal responsibility in that verse, isn't it? It's heavy, but it's reality. All right, so the idea of self-governing, we've got a responsibility in all that. Let's talk about Abraham for a second. God partners with this man called Abraham, and it says this about Abraham, is that Abraham simply believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. You can read Abraham's story in Genesis 12 through 25. It's a wonderful story. In fact, Abraham's life is given to us as a testament of what it means to live by faith. You know, we, as, as Westerners, we want definitions of what is faith. And, and we like some of that Hebrews 11 where it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We like those kind of, we don't even know what it means, but we like, what it's, we like definitions. You know what I'm talking about? But when God gets ready to show you what faith is, he doesn't give you a definition. He gave us a story about a man named Abraham. And Paul alludes to that kind of about Romans chapter 6, somewhere in there. He says, if you want to know what true faith is, Romans 5 and 6, I believe it is. If you want to know what true faith is, go learn from Abraham. He's the father of us all in faith, you know. So God partners with this man who believed him. And this partnership with Abraham becomes a turning point in human history now, okay. Now, this turning point is important to righteousness and justice, all right? It's important to this idea of righteousness and justice we're talking about because God wants righteousness and justice to be established in the earth. So he calls this man, Abraham, to walk with him. He's going to teach Abraham a lot. And Abraham's going to teach us a lot in return. Now, why did God choose Abraham? This is what Genesis 18, 19 says this, this about this man, Abraham. One of the greatest men of all human history. He's actually one of the most revered men of all human history. Nearly revered by almost everybody on the planet. You realize that? This is what it says about Abraham. Now this is, this is embedded into the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is what he says about Abraham. He wants to let Abraham know what he's going to do in this city. And God says this. For I have known him. I've known Abraham. In order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's spoken to him. Now, what was, what was the reason, according to this verse right here, there were other reasons too, but, but this verse right here, what was the one reason God chose Abraham? To keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness, righteousness and justice. And how is he going to keep this way? He's going to teach his children that come after him. Okay, so now let's, let's put this other foundation in here. This other truth right here along, alongside of all this. Family is very important to keeping the way of righteousness and justice. God chose Abraham because he knew Abraham would be a good daddy to everybody he knew. You hear me? That's important. Because family is huge. The nuclear family is huge in God's economy. It's huge in God's foundation of what it means to be a just and healthy society. A civilized society even. Now when I say nuclear family, I'm talking about daddy, mama, and babies. Okay? Now God can work with a lot of things, and he does. Thank God he has mercy on us. But I use that idea of nuclear family because you remember a few weeks back, we talked about some of these movements want to dismantle the idea of, of mama and daddy and children. 
and family and make it all kinds of other different things. Okay? But the Bible's very plain about what a family is. And of course, spiritual family is important too. You know? So now, family is a vital part of God-ordained government. Now think about this. Now this is kind of technical. You may, may have never thought about family like this, but family is a part of government. Because where does a child, we talk about self-government, where is a child supposed to learn how to govern themselves? Where does a child, where's, where's the best classroom that that can happen in? It's at home, right? It's at home with the family. Both seeing it modeled, hearing it taught, examples, able to express his heart. Okay, let's just keep building on this. Now, in, in family now, and this idea of a civilized society, wherever there is a breakdown of family and a culture, there is a breakdown of righteousness and justice. Whether it be pockets of a culture or communities, if the family breaks down, you know what happens with right and wrong? It breaks down too, doesn't it? And it all kind of works together. Now this idea, we, we, we're, building this, we're building something here. We're going to get to these two, church and civil government, maybe later, next week hopefully. It starts with God. It starts with God and His Word. This is how it all works together. God and His Word teach us about self-government, kind of like Ezekiel 18 just taught us a lot of things. But there's a whole lot more to learn about what to do in life and how to make decisions and, and how to live morally and how to live in right and, and to, to shun the wrong. There's a lot more to learn. Where do we get that? We resource it out of God and His Word and the conscience that He's put inside of us. But that's from God. Okay? Teaches us self-government. Where does a child learn self-government? Well, they learn it from God and they learn it from family. You know, my mom and dad were a firm believer that there was a nerve that ran from my backside to my brain. And if they hit my backside just right, it affected my brain in the way I thought. And mamas and daddies, you listen to me now. Listen to me. When you discipline your child, always do it in the right, proper way. No doubt about it. But when you discipline your child towards right and wrong, you literally are planting a seed of righteousness in them. We've got to do it right. We've got to do it in the right temperament. We've got to do it the right way. But when you teach your child wrong and you discipline your child, let's use that word, Paul, use that word. When you discipline your child, you literally are planting a seed of what's right and what's wrong and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. What's holy and what's unholy. You're planting that seed. Now what happens in the heart of a child where those seeds are never planted? It's tragic. It's horribly tragic. Not just for that child, it's a train wreck for that child that grows up to be a teenager and, a, and, a, and an adult. But it's also a train wreck for society. Because none of us stand alone. What undergirds the family? Well, God, self-government, because mom and dad are to do the right thing. And to teach the child to do the right thing in the house of the family, which the family is kind of the lab, it's kind of the incubator for all of what's right and wrong and what's righteousness and justice. It's the incubators where we teach everything, learn everything. It's the lab. The church helps. The church is to undergird the family in every way possible. And the church is also to be a spiritual family for those who may have been... Uh, in bad situations, maybe some were uh, widowed and maybe some had, had deaths in their family, orphaned and things of that nature. Maybe some uh, went through bad, terrible divorces or something of that nature and, and the family's not just the ideal. 
where, where the, fam, the church comes into that, that void and helps people get to this another idea to learn right and wrong in self-government. You see what I'm talking about? And learn about God who teaches us all this other stuff. So the church is huge in this idea of what it is to be healthy in society. Because as we, the church teaches the principles from God's word, it teaches people to make right decisions and govern their own lives properly. We're not to control people. Jesus is very plain about that. Don't lord over people, telling them what to do. Tell them how to do stuff. Don't tell them what to do. Self-government's a real big principle in God's economy too now. And if churches violate that with authoritarian leadership, then, then we're really on the outs with this guy right here. He's not going to like that because that's not how he set it up. See what I'm talking about? And civil government's got a play, part to play too. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But it undergirds some of this t- stuff too now. But every one of these have to be handled right and just. God always is. Self-government, we're learning. Family, we're learning. Church, we're learning. All right. All right, let's, let's wrap it up with this. I'm pretty sure this is about the end of it. Y'all know I don't ever get to the end. I just had to stop. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6. Very important passage now. Very important passage in the history of Israel. Um, devout Jews say this passage every single day. It's called the Sma. Okay? They, they read this or recite this to themselves in prayer every single day. It's believed that Jesus did it morning and evening. Okay? Now this is real important. Sma. Now Sma is the, is the Hebrew word for hear. Okay? So it's the very first word in this. Now I want you to look for three things in here as we get going. I want you to look for God. I want you to look for self-government. And I want you to look for family. Okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's several different ways that could be translated. The Lord is the Lord alone. You could say it like that too. The Lord is the unique one. You could say it like that. There's nothing, nobody like him. Nothing else like him in the universe. Or you could even translate it like this. The Lord our God, the Lord is to be first and primary, supreme. Okay, you could say it all different kinds of ways. The Lord is one. Verse number five. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, there's some Jewish traditions that have taken that very seriously. Have you ever seen anybody like in an airport or anything like that? Maybe a Jewish person that's got the, the leather wrapped around their arms and maybe something even wrapped around their head with a little box hanging down called phylacteries. You ever seen that kind of thing? That, they take that very seriously. They bind that, and then those, that leather strap is, is about this binding. I'm binding myself to the Word of God, and on the end of that strap is a little box that has Scripture in it. Okay, I'm just saying they take it very literal. Okay, now a lot of people interpret it figuratively, but but that particular sect of Judaism takes it very literal. The Pharisees would have been of that sect. Okay, they would have had that kind of idea. They bind it close to them. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You ever been into a Jewish establishment or maybe a Jewish home, and as soon as you walk into a door, maybe the entrance of the house, there's a little box on the wall. So usually a little ornate box. It's called a mezuzah. 
And in that box, they have, they take this very seriously about the doorpost. In that little box is a scripture just like this, maybe even this one, actually. Rolled up in a little scroll, put in that box. And the idea when they go in, they touch it, Lord, bless me going in. When I go out, touch it, bless me going out. Now, what, what about all that stuff? What's God trying to tell us? That he wants his word before us all the time. And, and you know what? You know, we don't have mezuzahs today. We got Hobby Lobby. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> they got all these scripture plaques and all this kind of stuff all over the place. And hey, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. Go get you a scripture plaque. Put it right over the top of your TV. We might need those reminders. Put it right over the top of your mirrors that you see yourself all the time. We, we might need some reminders along the way. That's what that's about. And nobody's past forgetting, I promise you. And nobody's past losing their footing. So put these things all over the place. You know, that's what, he, that's what he's saying. Now, now did, you see the, the, did you see the three things? Did you see God in there? Well, God, he's the Lord, our God. And he's God alone. He's God supreme. He's, he's right there. So God's in there. Did you see self-government or self-control or self-discipline? Did you see that in there? What's the word to us, to ourselves? What, what are we in charge of? You are in charge of seeing that you love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart. I'm going to take care of mine. I hope Sandy takes care of hers. And we can work on some of it together. But who's ultimately responsible for Ron's heart? Ron is. And I'm going to partner with the Holy Spirit to help me with that because I'm not good enough at it. But I'm, gonna ask, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of that. If I can say it like that, without offending the Lord, sorry about that. I, he's in charge. But I've been given a lot of responsibility over my own life and my own choices. So I've got to self-govern with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. I've got to love God. And Jesus would add to that and said, it's also your responsibility, Ron, to love your neighbor as you want to be loved. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's self-government. I'm supposed to do, I'm not supposed to just have, somebody can help me and teach me with that and help me. Jesus come alongside and does a lot of that. The Holy Spirit does, the scriptures come alongside. But when it's said and done, who's responsible? You are, I am, all right? Now, did you see family in there? What's the family? Diligently teach your children. You know, not to oversimplify something, but you know, you know why uh, a lot of Jewish societies, communities, I should say, Jewish communities thrive in no matter what city they go into? I mean, I'm serious. They, they thrive. They prosper in, in any kind of free setting that they're able to do what they, that, what they need to do. They absolutely thrive and prosper. Well, one is because of the blessing of God. But, you know, the reason the blessing of God's on them a lot of times is because they do this right here. They're diligent about this, I promise you. And if you ever know, I'm, I'm not talking about just the, the liberal side of, of the Jewish community. I'm talking about the, the more orthodox and devout side. Family is real important because family is how all of this idea of God and who he is and what he requires of us is passed on. That is the number one place of education. So he says, you be diligent to teach your children and talk about the things of God when you sit down in your house, not just church, but in your house. Turn your house into a sanctuary. 
And when you walk by the way, you go into the store, going wherever, take a nice walk with them. Talk about things, deep things, not just trivial things. Those are important too. When you lie down, when you rise up. So if you're doing it when you lie down, you do it when you get up. How does that mean you're doing it? It's constant. It's constant. You know what I found out? Because we've got grown kids now. That period of time that you get doesn't last very long. And it goes by like that. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and they're out in the world and you're like, dear God, help them. I hope I did what was right. And I know you got that ugly feeling inside of you as a parent. I get it all the time. I don't think I did enough. God just has to help us because now they get responsible for their own choices. You see what I'm talking about? Let's just end right there. Foundations, God and his word, self-government, family government. It's all part of what it means to be a part of a just and civilized society. Okay? I'm going to tell you now, this, these, unfortunately, these ideas, what I'm just telling you right now, have become very radical in our society. But it's not radical, it's just truth. It's just what's right. You know what I'm talking about? Lord, help us. Lord, do we need your help here. We need your help, Lord, to reveal yourself to us, to help us in all of our choices. Unfortunately, sometimes we've learned more about how to do it wrong than we have about how to do it right. We need you to help us, Lord. Increase our wisdom. Give us strength to choose the right, do the right, and shun the wrong. And Lord, help us in this idea of family. It's it's so, so important. It's so, so important in in our homes. It's important with spiritual family here in the church. It's so, so important. And Lord, we've all failed miserably in that area. Most of us anyway. I can't speak for anybody, but I I know I feel like I have at times. And we need you to help us, Lord. Help us. When we rise up, when we lay down, help us to be diligent. Maybe we get another chance with grandbabies, maybe, to help us. Teach us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would bless America. Just these few foundations that we talked about, Lord, they're being destroyed at a rapid pace. And if these foundations be destroyed, we, we, we don't have a prayer. So help us, Lord. Pour your mercy out upon America and help us come back to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.